morning. I just want to say, church, I love you. It's a privilege to serve as your pastor. I love listening to you sing. What Eugene did not mention uh, last at the beginning of the service with the announcements is that next week, the week that we will have our church picnic in the park, Lord willing, is also the same day that we will have the sending service for Eugene. Uh, he will be taking a position or has taken a position to serve at Bethel Baptist Church in Delaware. Uh, so we will focus our attention in that morning service in the sermon, not only studying the book of Jude, but preaching and encouraging Eugene as we send him from our church to their church. Chris McGarvey, their pastor, uh, will be here in attendance with us, and Lord willing, uh, one of Eugene's best friends will also be here with us. So we'd encourage you to, to come, uh, to be here, and to participate as we uh, invest in Eugene's life one more time. Uh, he has two more Sundays, this one and next one, with us before we send him out to, to serve another church. Uh, you'll be encouraged to know that we will be given a prize away to see who can outdress Eugene. Uh, so do, do your best. Uh, so he doesn't think you can do it. He's shaking his head. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Jude. Uh, it is a small book at the end of the Bible. If you find the book of Revelation at the end, it's the book right before it. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and much more enjoyable if you follow along with me in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word, the Bible. If you don't have a copy with you, you should be able to find a copy underneath the seat in front of you. The book of Jude, one of the general epistles, begins on page 1027. I'm going to begin reading in Jude 1, verse 1, in just a moment. But as you turn there, it's important for us to recognize that we're going to begin studying what some have called the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's neglected in many ways because of its brevity. It's a small letter, just 25 verses. It doesn't even have a chapter. It's neglected because of its strangeness. Writing in the early 60s, it quotes First Enoch and the Assumption of Moses, at least, among other things. It's neglected because of its message of judgment that strikes many as intolerant, unloving, contrary to the message of love that we see taught elsewhere in the New Testament. But Jude is one of the most relevant books in the New Testament for us, teaching us that errant teaching and immoral living have dire consequences, as he warns us. He doesn't simply warn us about teachers who teach false things errantly, and he doesn't just simply say, don't live that way, live this way. He tells us both are dangerous and have significant consequences in the life of the church. Jude writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself for here speaking to us today. We will read the whole letter today. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel, Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs 
at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And I pray, Father, that you would help us now as we turn our attention toward your word. Guard my mouth. Help me to preach what is in your word. Father, help us to listen. We know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are studying, the word that we have read about, sung about, prayed from, and now are preparing to listen to preached. Father, we pray that you would help us to listen, to focus our attention on your word, and that you would strengthen us in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Father, we pray for the believers that are here, that they might be encouraged And as believers, we all pray for those who are not Christians who are here today. Father, we ask that you would do the good work of redeeming grace and cause them to be born again by the Spirit of Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. Amen. Amen. When do white lies turn evil? When do white lies turn evil? Asks Daniel Dennett in his book, Caught in the Pulpit, leaving belief behind, as he tries to advocate for the nearly 200 members of the clergy project who, as of 2015, still had pulpits, even though they no longer held the beliefs their congregations thought that they did. The phenomenon of a clergy who don't believe the creeds that they profess from the pulpit has been around for centuries, both in fact and in fiction. The Reverend Clarence Wilmot, was a Lutheran minister of John Updike's in Beauty of the Lilies, who after years of struggling with religious doubts, announced his disbelief and thereupon is plunged in the narrative into a downward spiral, losing his job, losing his respectable position in the community, and eventually losing his own family. When so-called Christian ministers announce their disbelief, it's not very surprising to us And maintaining faith for everyone else is difficult. But it's not always so obvious, the announcement of disbelief, is it? Not every person who doesn't believe just stands behind the pulpit and says, I no longer believe. Jude certainly doesn't think so. And when it isn't so obvious, how can we persevere in the midst of falsehood? How can you be faithful in faithless times when people are faithless? By realizing that how someone lives, not simply what they profess to believe, but how someone lives is the most reliable indicator of what they actually believe. And in the opening verses, Jude instructs us in how to live. 
Three points will frame our time together this morning. Live as servants. Live as those saved. And live as stewards. Notice first, live as servants. Look again with me at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The author of the letter identifies himself for us in the opening verse. His name is Jude. Jude was a real person and he had a real name. And he tells us that he had a real family and a real brother. Verse 1, named James. As he humbly describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And it is particularly humble when we consider that he doesn't even mention that he is the half-brother of Jesus. Jude doesn't come and name drop here at the beginning of his letter. He doesn't tell everybody in the congregation, hey, you all should really listen to me. You know, I grew up with Jesus. He identifies himself as a servant, not as a sibling of the brother he calls, verse 4, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. His half-brother is his full Lord. And it is an astonishing claim when we remember that there was a time when Jude, along with the rest of his brothers, had considered Jesus to be crazy. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, if you just write the reference down and you go look in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus is ministering. And Jesus is now calling apostles to come follow him. And Jesus is now openly going out in public and telling people that the demons are cast out of them and people who are sick, that their sins uh, have been forgiven them. And his family, when they hear of all of it, say in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, he is out of his mind and they try to seize him. It is only after the death and resurrection of Jesus that Jude and his brothers begin to finally see what they had missed while growing up with Jesus. That Jesus is, verse 1, the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is God's anointed one. Teaching us that proximity to Jesus does not mean that we understand Jesus. Brothers and sisters, friends who are here on a Sunday morning, fellow members of this church, Regular attenders, guests. If it was possible for Jude to grow up with Jesus and misunderstand Jesus, it is entirely possible for you to grow up in church and to misunderstand Jesus completely. And if being a sibling of Jesus didn't make Jude a Christian, being a member of a church or being baptized or participating in the Lord's Supper, or serving on staff, or giving generously of what you have, doesn't make you a Christian. We understand Jesus when we believe by faith this side of the death and resurrection, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, he is God's anointed one. So Jude wants to come and tell people, I'm not a sibling of Jesus. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. That belief by grace alone, through faith alone, that makes him and makes all of us Christians and is evidenced in our lives when we come to, verse 1, serve the one we once rejected. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. A day came in Jude's life when the sibling became the savior for Jude. When the one that he had rejected became the one that he served and the one that he worshipped. When the one that he mocked and said was out of his mind was now the one that he proclaimed and told everyone to be the true son of God. And friends, it must be true for you as well. Isn't it true for those who have believed? That the Jesus that we once rejected is now the savior that we serve. We might not have rejected him as strongly as some or as overtly as some, but the Jesus that we did not believe in, we might have known about, we might have heard about, we might have confessed facts about, we might have studied about, we might have gone to VBS to learn about, we might have attended a church to hear about, became the Jesus that we now loved. He was no longer something that was merely a data point for us. But he was the Christ, the Son of God. The one that we rejected and turned away from became the one that we serve with all of our life and that we would describe just like Jude, verse 4, as our master. And we are his, verse 1, servants who delight to serve him. Fellow believers, do you delight to serve him? Not do you begrudgingly do things that the elders of the church ask you to do. 
Not do you willingly and sometimes unwillingly finally answer the emails of the deacons as they email you throughout the middle of the week. But do you delight to serve the Savior who has saved you? How someone lives is the most reliable indicator of what they actually believe. Does that belief transfer into a life changed by the gospel? Or as we've said many times in here, if nothing has changed about your life, then maybe nothing has changed about your life. And Jude tells us, albeit indirectly, to live as servants by identifying himself as a servant. He does not set himself above those to whom he's writing to. He says, I'm just a fellow servant. Friends, it is as servants of the Savior that we fight for the faith. Do you want to change the world? Do you want to help strengthen the church in this community? Do it as servants. And contend for the faith as servants of Christ. Serving on Sundays, serving on Wednesdays, serving people with the gospel and serving them by inviting them into your home. Serving so that people might know that Jesus Christ is your master and Lord. Live as servants. Notice second, live as those saved. Look with me again at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, it is really hard to think of a more wonderful way to be addressed as Christians. Just hear it again. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, or dearly loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called effectually, made alive by the Holy Spirit to hear the gospel clearly. The Holy Spirit uses divine truth, the reading of God's word, the singing of God's word, the praying of God's word, the preaching of God's word to obtain our voluntary obedience to the gospel. The good news of God's salvation in Christ calls us forth from death to life. It transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And the Spirit opens our ears to hear it. Many of you know exactly what that is like. You sat through services just like this and heard sermons just like this one and did not believe, but then a day came when everything changed. And the astonishing reality is that there are people in your life who have heard the same sermons that you've heard from the same preachers that you've heard them from in the same context that you were at, and they still have not believed. And it's not because you're smarter or more intelligent or you were able to understand in the way that they weren't because you suffered a little less or you suffered a little more. It's because God in his mercy by his spirit opened your ears to hear the good news of the gospel. And on that day, you heard what you had never really quite heard before. And you believed what you had never really believed before. And something changed on that day. It is a calling that actually raises us up, which is the imagery that we have before us today. You are buried and you are raised. It raises us up from the death of our sins. And it gives us gifts, the gifts of repentance and faith, inseparable graces that we confess to believe in our church, produced in our souls and in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Graces that convince us of our guilt. We are guilty. We are sinners. We deserve to go to hell. That's not just merely bad news. It is the bad news that prepares us to receive the good news. And it convinces us of our danger. Friend, if you are not a Christian, you are in great danger. We're not simply here to rail against you and to tell you that you're bad and you're wicked, that you deserve to go to hell. You are and you should. But you are in great danger. You stand in a terrible place because you live in a world that tells you you're fine. Be all that you can be. God likes you just the way that you are. And God is such a loving God that he will never judge you. And no one else should ever judge you. But to be called out by God is to see our sinfulness and to realize that we are in great peril. We stand upon a precipice and we will die because of that sin. And we are helpless to do anything about it. You are in danger because you are living in a world that tells us that you're not as helpless as you actually are. You can go to college, and you should go to college, and you should make money, and you should make a lot of money. And if you don't go to college, you can make money other ways. 
You can do it online and at home. You can do it overseas or in the United States, and you're going to be just fine. But the Bible tells us you are helpless, and all of that is an illusion. It is an illusion that gives you a false sense of security. It makes you think, I'm really not that bad, am I? I mean, I live in or near a white-collar community and go to church in or near a white-collar community. How bad could I be? If it was really bad, I'd live in West Philly. The reality is, friends, it all deceives us. We are helpless unless God does the good work of calling us out to see our helpless state and gives us salvation by faith in Christ. Genuine repentance and faith turns to God in sorrow for sin to receive Christ as Savior, as the all-sufficient Savior. It's not simply feeling bad about your sin. You do feel bad about your sin. And here's the reality, friends. You should feel bad about your sin. When I counsel people in this church, they always feel bad about their sin. But often what is underneath that is that they feel more bad about the consequences that they will experience because of their sin. But it's not simply feeling bad about your sin. Unbelievers, non-Christians, feel bad about the wrong things that they do often. It is a turning towards God and realizing that I feel bad and I need God to do something about it for me. Called and dearly loved, beloved, beloved by God the Father before the foundation of the world. In our family devotions, one of the things we're doing right now is we're reading through the book of Ephesians. And often I'm just asking our kids a litany of questions as we're sitting around the dinner table. And I'm asking them right now, the Apostle Paul, how does he structure his letters? And I want them to say the indicative and the imperative or because I'm a little nerdy and I want them to be a little nerdy or what God has done for us and what we are to do because of what God has done for us. What has God done for us? Before the foundation of the world, he set his electing gaze on us. Before your parents even desired to get married, God in the fullness of time has set his eyes on you and he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, before the foundation of the world, God prepared to move history to save your soul if you're a Christian. God has literally orchestrated history so that you would hear the good news of the gospel and be born again by the Spirit of Christ and that you would know that you are dearly loved. No matter how the world treats you, you are dearly loved. No matter what other people have said to you, you are dearly loved. No matter how worthless you feel because of what other people have done against you, you are dearly loved. No matter how wrongfully someone has taken advantage of you, you are dearly loved. You are dearly loved and precious to God the Father. He has moved history to make sure that you would know infinite love, fullness of joy, abundance of life forevermore. You are dearly loved. Beloved, lift up your chin. You are dearly loved. Loved by God the Father Almighty. Loved before anything came into existence. And loved forever. You are precious to God. You might not feel precious. And no one else might ever make you feel precious. And it might be hard in this life to believe that you're precious. But the scripture comes to declare to you what you do not feel and should believe to be true anyways. You are dearly loved by God and you are kept. Kept for Jesus Christ or as your Bibles probably say, if there's a footnote, kept by Jesus Christ. You are kept for Jesus Christ. You are kept by Jesus Christ. You are kept through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, fellow believers, the reason that you woke up a Christian this morning is because God keeps you. And the reason that you will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ before the end of the day is because God in Christ is keeping you. You are a kept people. You are kept by the power of God through faith. You are shielded and guarded by the Savior who loves you so much that he gave himself for you. So stop trying to make yourself feel kept. 
You see, one of the backwards things that we do in the Christian life is we try to make ourselves feel like God loves us by trying to obey and keep a distance between us and whatever the thing is that we most detest. It's not all of the sins in our lives, but there are some things in our life that we just really don't like. Stuff that we look at, stuff that we do, stuff that we say, ways that we respond. Those things shame us in particular. And so we try to distance ourselves from them. And we think, if I can keep that over there and I can keep me over here, I feel pretty good about me. The Bible will have none of that. Sinners though you are, sinners by birth, sinners by choice, sinners who love their sin more than they love the Savior, you are kept by God and not by your goodness, not by your obedience, not by your generosity, not by your service, not by your name on a roll, not by anything you've ever done or anything you ever will do. You are kept. You are kept people, shielded, guarded, protected by the Savior who put himself between you and the enemy who would destroy you and substituted himself for you so that you would know God's love. And that, friends, is good news. Good news because you are a treasured people. You are treasured by the triune God himself. So, struggler, what will pluck you from the Father's hand? Nothing. Doubter, who will separate you from the love of God? No one. A Christian is not someone who keeps themselves by keeping a hold of God. They are someone who is kept by God the Father. The God who called you because he loves you and keeps you. And that is good news. Friends, that is the good news that gives us confidence to press on. Because if we're honest, especially for those who have suffered and suffered greatly, perhaps you've suffered in ways that you've never shared with anybody in this church. And just as a quick aside, I want to say we would love to hear what has happened. I would love to listen. Our deacons would love to listen. Our elders would love to listen. We would love to hear and figure out if there are ways that we can help. But it gives us confidence to press on. And it gives us courage to keep repenting. The courage that we have is that every time we sin, we know that we cannot commit a sin that Jesus did not die for, that we cannot sin ourselves outside of the love of God, the God who so dearly loved us that he substituted his son for us. It gives us courage to come forward boldly and to bring our sin to him and say, God, forgive me afresh, forgive me again. And the astonishing, beautiful reality of the gospel is that every time you sin and every time you come to him, he will always say, you are forgiven. You are forgiven every single time. So friends, just join me by keep on repenting. Repent and repent and repent. And remember that there is never shame in repentance. It is a precious thing to be one of God's chosen, dearly loved, kept people. Precious realities that help us to live They help us live, live as servants and live as those who are saved because how someone lives is the most reliable indicator of what they actually believe. Live as those who are saved. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you living? There's Alabama. Are you living? Are you living as God's chosen, dearly loved and kept people? As people who emphasize God's action? As people who emphasize God's work, God's work of calling you and loving you and keeping you till the end. And friends, he will keep you. And the astonishing beauty is not only what God has done for you, but also what God wants to do for you. Look at verse 2. Jude's prayer reflects that. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He has done so much for you. And his plan for you is unimaginably bright. Jude knew the danger was that they might be swept away by false teaching. And we're often swept away by false teaching because we forget these precious realities. We're swept away and enticed by false teaching because we fail to believe what is true of us in Christ and what God has before us in Christ. So Jude encourages these believers so that they might not be swept away. And he is confident of God's work in them and of God's work for them to produce in them lives of people who live like they are saved. 
friends, live like God's redeemed people. Because Jude knows that how you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. Do you live like you believe what you profess to believe? Live as servants. Live as those who are saved. Notice third, live as stewards. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me, please. Beloved. It's actually a different word than what we read in verse, uh, the previous verse. That is dearly loved. This is beloved. It's an address. He's speaking to them now. Beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude really wanted to write a different letter. He wanted to write a theological treatise. He wanted to reflect on the love of God. And there are many great works that remind us of the love of God, that help us to reflect on the love of God. But when he heard about what was going on, when he began to understand the precarious situation that they were in, he wanted to encourage them. So he wrote a different letter. He didn't write the letter reflecting the salvation that is theirs in Christ. He wrote a different letter, one that required him to write and to contend for the faith that was passed down from the apostles to him, to them, so that they would be able to pass it on to other people. And Jude's purpose here, his change in plan, actually reveals to us something of his spiritual maturity. A maturity that we should also emulate. A maturity that recognizes that there are times when we must do something that is necessary over and against the thing that we would like to do that is also good. Jude changes plans. And he writes to them, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to the more urgent and practical need, that we would be faithful stewards of the faith. Stewards who, verse 3, contend for the faith. He does not say that we would be stewards who are contentious about the faith. He says that we would be stewards who contend for the faith. The word contend is an athletic term. There is a combat nature to it. Jude calls these believers to exert effort on behalf of those who believe. And he does it by emphasizing that they are entrusted with what has been placed in their hands. What has been given to them? The faith. The faith. Not what they believe the faith to be. Not what somebody else says the faith is. But the faith that was once for all and finally and climactically delivered In Jesus Christ. There is no other revelation. There is no other message that is needed. They are to contend for that message. The message that all people everywhere need to hear. To repent and to believe the gospel. And they are to watch over it. They are to be faithful stewards and care for that until the rightful owner returns. As many who this summer in our congregation have learned as being those who are house sitting for other people in the congregation while they're away. What do you do? You're just taking care of what is somebody else's until they come home. This is not a battle cry to win arguments while losing people. Jude does not say, be contentious and learn how to offend everybody. Jude does not merely focus on common truths. He focuses on behavior that grows out of Christian belief. You see, one of the great errors in Christianity right now is that we think that to be somebody who's actually rightly contending for the faith means that we just shout the loudest. We yell the loudest. We yell in public. We yell online. We yell in emails. And we make sure that everybody knows, you're wrong! And we think that that makes us right. Or you're an idiot! And we think that makes us right. But Jude never tells us to act like that. In fact, he never even focuses on that. He focuses on behavior that grows out of Christian belief, that we would not merely be doctrinally right. He does want us to be doctrinally right. There is a deposit, the faith. But he wants us to be practically right in how we live out that belief, which is why, if we're careful readers, we notice that he highlights the false teachers. And when he highlights them, he doesn't go after what they say. He doesn't go after what they believe. He goes after how they live 
and how they behave. Verse 4. Why did I write for you to contend to the faith? For reason or purpose. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude is concerned about an unseen enemy, an ungodly people who have crept in unnoticed. But they are unlike God and unlike the God they profess to believe, and they are not like God's people. But how did they creep in unnoticed? They said all the right things. They could sign all of the right belief statements. And they were able to profess and articulate all of the right beliefs. Proximity to Jesus did not make Jude a believer. And your careful, specific articulation of Christian doctrine, reformed and accurate as it may be, will not make you a Christian. They are an ungodly, unholy people who pervert grace. They turn grace into a way of living that is contradictory to the gospel. And in so doing, verse 4, they pervert the grace of our God. They pervert it and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They twist it and they oppose Christ. And he tells us the church is in danger because of them. Because these false teachers have snuck into the church and people will listen to them because they say the right things. But they are destined for judgment. So he calls us, as he calls them to contend, to defend, to fight for the faith with an integrity where that belief actually transfers into a behavior that is not separated from one another. Because how you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. Brothers and sisters, the greatest threats to the Christian faith often come from people who are masquerading as Christians. Ungodly abusers of God's grace. But the difficulty for us is that they say the right things. It's not the obvious enemy, the opposing army on the other side, where we can see them all lined up against us saying false things. But the spy who has snuck into the camp and says all of the right things, but twists it and turns it. They speak the right language. They've gone to the right schools. They say the right thing because they've attended the right places. But Jude tells us that they spy out our liberties, and they pervert it into license, which is actually the other way of destroying the Christian faith. You see, we can destroy the Christian faith by legalism, by adding stuff to the gospel. You must repent and believe the gospel and anything. Or we can destroy the gospel by license, by subtracting from the life of faith. You must believe in Jesus, but you don't really have to be holy the way that Jesus commands. And if you'll notice in our own Bible reading, we're all doing it all the time, blunting the edge of the text. Could God really mean? Did he actually say it and mean it to be that? Does he really require that of me? But it's never from people who are brash enough to say, you know, since we're all Christians in here and saved by grace, you don't really have to believe Jesus. But it might be in ways where we say things like this. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be happy in relationships, so it's okay for me to sleep with my boyfriend or to live with my girlfriend. Or he's not really that upset because he knows my needs. And he understands that when I do this, it's just the way I'm wired as a man or as a woman. We turn it into sensuality, and we pervert the grace of God, and we think it's really not that bad, is it? Friends, the grace that saves us trains us to refuse sin, not excuse sin. But Jude tells us that that grace has many counterfeits, counterfeits that presume upon the grace of God. And friends, that is dangerous. Believers in particular in here, I'm speaking to you right now. Do you presume upon the grace of God? As if it is no big deal. Professing Christian in this room. Do you presume upon the grace of God and think it's okay and that I'm going to get away with this? Jude tells us that that is a very dangerous place. It's dangerous because God's grace 
doesn't excuse our sin. God's grace deals with our sin through the sin bearer that God sent. The good news of the gospel is that God dealt with our sin problem. Our sin problem was so bad that we could never deal with it. It was always pulling us away. It was always diverting our attention. It was always distracting us. It was always taking us places that we would never go in our right mind. It's always leading us to do things that we would never do when we were before other people, that we would never do when we're thinking rightly to be able to control the situation. Our sin problem is so bad and so pervasive that it corrupts everything in our lives. It corrupts our thinking. It corrupts our speech. It corrupts our relationships. It corrupts our friendships on every level. And God in his great mercy dealt with that by sending Jesus Christ to be the sin bearer, to not simply live a good life. He did live a good life. He lived the best one ever. And to not simply live a better life than you. His life was way better than your life. But to be the sin bearer, to die as your substitute, bearing all of your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus stood in your place and bore your sin so that you might be freed from the shackles of sin, so that you might live as God saved people, so that you might know the forgiveness of sins, and so that you might know mercy and grace and peace abundantly and multiplied over. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that you don't need to look for an excuse to your sin. Is that you need to look to the Savior of your sin. And He will deal with that sin. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that is the basic message of Christianity. And we implore you. We don't just invite you. We beg you to believe in this gospel. Because you are in a terribly dangerous place. Apart from belief in that gospel, you will go to hell. And believer, Jude is writing to you, just like he was writing to these believers, whoever they were, wherever they were at, writing to them to encourage them, to remind them of these precious truths. Believer and unbeliever, if you need to be encouraged by the gospel, find one of the pastors following the service today. Find one of the elders. We'd love to speak with you and encourage you, fellow Christian, non-Christian, if you need to trust in that gospel, find one of us. We would love to tell you more about Jesus Christ and to know the good news of the gospel. But perhaps you're somebody who just needs to read it a little more slowly. Take one of those Bibles or go out to our Connection Center. That's the display area with books. You walk through those doors, turn left, and you'll see it over there. And there are many good books about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know which one to read... Ask somebody who's there following the service today, which book can I read to learn more about this good news of the gospel? We'd love for you to have one of those books today so that you can learn about Jesus Christ. Jude tells us that the false teachers are a real threat. They're not a hypothetical threat. They're not some people out there. They are people in the church who have perverted the gospel and twisted it, denying the truth about Jesus Christ living lives that are marked by lawless behavior, even when it's not publicly seen, as our pastor Renee taught us last week as he shared an example of someone else's life. But Jude knows that how you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. And he calls us, friends, to live as servants, to live as those who are saved, to live as stewards of the faith, and he invites us to join him in contending for the faith. So how do we contend or fight for the faith? I want you to look with me very quickly at the end of the letter. Look in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers. So don't be shocked that there are false teachers. Don't be shocked that there are scoffers. Don't be shocked that there are ungodly people who are following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. They're worldly people. They're devoid of the Spirit. Notice their behavior. What do they do? They're contentious. They're divisive. They're devoid of the Spirit. They're ungodly, unholy people. But you, beloved, here's how you contend for the faith. Building yourselves up in a most holy faith. You contend for the faith by building. Praying in the Holy Spirit. You contend for the faith. You fight for the faith by praying. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You contend or fight for the faith by waiting, waiting patiently, 
waiting expectantly for Christ to return. And have mercy on those who doubt. You contend or fight for the faith by having mercy on people. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. You contend or fight for the faith, not by consigning everybody to eternal perdition and making sure that they know that they're desperately going to hell, but by saving them out of the fire, proclaiming the gospel to them and working to pull them away from the darkness. To others, show mercy with fear. Why? Because you have been shown mercy, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. At the beginning of the letter, he tells us to contend, to fight to exert ourselves for the faith. And at the end of the letter, he actually tells us how we do it. And it is all positive. It's not simply negative. He doesn't say, go and be mean. But he says, build, pray, wait, have mercy, save, snatch out of the fire. Church, members of Christ's church, Would that be what the outside world sees when they look at the members of our church and scrutinize our lives closely? That those are the kind of members that we are? Join me in this endeavor, a fellow struggler on the way. It is hard to always be building and be praying and to be waiting. But friends, that is exactly what we are called to. A life of love, a life of faith, a life that hopes, a life that builds, a life that seeks to save. What does it mean to have Christian faith in a faithless time? It means to build and not simply tear down. As we persevere in the midst of falsehood, something that this very table calls us to do, as it actually helps us visualize what our only master and Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. This table is a visible reminder of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and then he offered up his body to be broken on behalf of his people. His body was broken. His flesh was torn. He was mutilated and humiliated as he was mocked and mistreated while being mistried and wrongly accused and wrongly judged. And he did it for you, Christian. He did it for you. His body was broken and his blood was shed. Many of you have known the pain of a wound or some kind of blood loss. But Jesus shed his precious blood, innocent though he was, to save people who were sinful and did not deserve to be forgiven. He shed his blood his very life he gave so that you might know mercy and forgiveness and be forgiven of not some of your sins or the worst of your sins or a good portion of your sins, but all of your sins, past, present, and future. This table is a visible reminder that proclaims to us the precious work of Christ. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It is certainly a sign that points us backwards. It reminds us of what Jesus has done. But it is also a table that points us forward. Because of what Jesus has done, you have no fear of the future. And because of what Jesus has done, you can live the life that we have talked about in this very sermon. You can live a godly life Because Jesus has substituted himself for you. He has given you his spirit. He has empowered you by that spirit to live righteously and hopefully and faithfully as we look forward to the eternal day of God drawing near. And he will keep you to that day. It is a table that points us back. It is a table that points us forward. It is a table that encourages us. Who do you invite to the table? Your family, your friends, people that you love. And what does Jesus do to all of his enemies? He saves them and then he invites them to the family table and he feeds them and nourishes them so that they might have the joy of salvation and walk in power. This is not a meal where we simply come and feel sorry for Jesus. It is a meal that encourages us and reminds us of the victory that is ours in Christ and that we have been brought into a family 
Believer, eyes up real quick. You are not alone. Look around. God has loved you so much to give you his friends as your own. And you call them brother and sister. God has been merciful. And this table is a reminder of that. So as we gather and come down those lines in just a few moments, may all of that be a proclamation that you're not the only sinner. All of the other sinners are in line with you. And you're not the only one who needed to be saved. All of them needed to be saved too. And that you're not alone. God has given you people that you might have a family so that you might be reminded that he loves you. It is a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. It gives us confidence. It gives us hope. It gives us courage. It gives us courage to repent of our sins, to forgive others of the sins that they've committed against us. So friends, let me ask you, have you repented of your sins afresh in preparation for this table? Or are you excusing your sins and perverting the grace of God into license? Friends, if that's you here today, repent of your sin. If you need help throwing that sin off, grab one of the pastors or a fellow member. If you're struggling to forgive, be reminded of the forgiveness that God has shown you in Christ. He has not treated any of us as our sins deserve. Forgive as he has forgiven. Turn away from the sins that he has forgiven us of. And hear these precious words as we do. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, receive afresh the forgiveness of sins. But if you're here, and you haven't believed that forgiveness, you haven't trusted in this Christ, And we're just going to tell you the most godly thing that you can do is stay in your seat right now when people stand up in a few moments. No one will judge you. Stay in that seat and ask God to forgive you of your sins. And find one of the pastors or one of the members following the service. We would love to speak with you about what God is doing in your life. Friends, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, if you have believed the gospel that has been preached here this morning, if you have been baptized, If you're a member in good standing of a church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, we invite you to come to this table. But if not, it is okay to stay and to do business with God this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand. Those who are serving the table, please come forward at this time. I'm going to pray. There will be two lines. We're going to ask you to break off a piece of the bread and take a cup, go to the outside, and then go back down and around to your seat so that The traffic will be able to flow smoothly at all times. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in Christ. You have not treated us as our sins deserve. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that is ours in Christ. And we ask that you would help us now as we come to this table to celebrate, to rejoice, to remember to be pointed backwards even as we are pointed forward as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, I pray for all of the believers present that they might come to this table confidently today knowing that in Christ you have dealt with each and every sin in their life. You have dealt with them completely, definitively, finally in Christ. Father, for every unbeliever, non-Christian in the room, I pray that this table would be another proclamation that you would use to cause them to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you come, take, and sing with us?